Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Two Half Squats. Another episode. And people loved the last one so much, Climbing the Ladder with Natter. Yeah, we're going to do another interview tonight. We think you'll find it most enjoyable. Almost a full hour. Yeah. Looking forward to this one because we got the product first and got me all excited about it. This will be episode 116. 216, maybe. Oh, you know what? I, several times I've been put, typing one in when I've been doing the really? write-ups. Yeah. yeah I don't that, know what happened. That happened. I reset my mind 100 episodes. It's amazing we're at 216. I think we're. It? I think it's amazing. The 300 looks doable now. Yeah, it does. And, you know, there's a lot of podcasts out there. Tons, 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 tons. But very few have lasted as long as us. Yeah, Fear the so, Boot is at 500 plus, but well, we're yeah. not making that. No. Pro- well, I don't know. Well, we'll Probably dead. not. <laughs> Probably not. We won't be here. Anyway, you want to banter a little bit, or should we go right into just the thing? a little you bit. The polar say... vortex, Jeff, what'd you do for that? Oh, we stayed inside. It we got down too. to 22 below zero Fahrenheit here. Pre-wind chill. Pre-wind chill. That was yeah, negative was... 50s. Right. The and house was cold. My house was cold. Was it? And you were off from school. They closed the school for two days. Is that right? Yeah. Well, we had the snow day Monday, which we probably may not have needed. Although my driveway was, you know, it would have been a challenge maybe to get out. Yeah. But, and then Tuesday we were in school. Wednesday they canceled my district. The other districts canceled Wednesday, Thursday, clearly knowing what was going to happen. Yeah. And my district added Thursday and later. And, uh, yeah, we, the whole family, so Megan's school was closed, Aaron's school was closed, Adam at Illinois State, they told those kids, no, you're not walking the campus. Oh, right. No, stay in your dorm, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So we literally, yeah, did what you did, held up for the whole day, the four of us. Laura didn't go to work either. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. But Board did, game. Yeah, oh, really? Yeah. Like, did you uh, have the electricity off? No. <laughs> Oh, good. Wouldn't that be bad? Yes, that would be bad. But our gas fireplace would have worked still, right, if if we had a problem? Yeah, yeah. So I was thinking about that stuff. Because, yeah, my upper bedroom, my <laughs> my ear was really, really cold. And I woke up, and I'm like, oh, man, that's our normal nighttime temp. And yeah. It ain't cutting it. Yeah. Well, our door was closed, too, which is normal. But uh, I went to the bathroom because, you know, at my age... Um, and then left the door open, and that was enough to let the heat up. Ah, warmed you up a little bit. But still, we were really under the blankets. Yeah. Yeah, you could just feel it radiating through the walls in a whole different way. Yeah. Yeah, we were uh, at downtown Chicago on Tuesday. We knew everything was going to be closed on Wednesday, and uh, we were heading out of town at about 5.30, around rush hour. We were trying to catch the 5.30 train. But the traffic was backed up. The, the taxi couldn't get us there in time. So, But the the train station was packed because the trains weren't running correctly. Because apparently when it gets that cold, the switches freeze up. Yeah. And the trains can't make their schedule. So there's all these people and all these trains. And for some reason, there were 20 or so Chicago policemen around there, with some of them with <laughs> machine guns. I don't know what that was about. And we're all standing there waiting for the train. And it felt like a scene out of Tom Cruise's War of the Worlds or something. <laughs> See and our was, spine and sprocket episode. Yeah, and I was starting to, oh, I wasn't starting to panic, but I was starting to think, wow, are we going to get on this train? Are we going to have to spend the night in the train station? I mean, what's going to happen here? We're all going to we're all going to die or be frozen or it's going to be like Stalingrad or something. We're going to have to start eating each other and who looks good and who doesn't look that good. And I'm going to go stand next to somebody that looks fairly nutritious. (laughs) Not too fatty, (laughs) not too tough, not too wiry. Yeah. And then we're standing outside, you know, they said, and the train will be coming in in five minutes and everybody's rushing out there. And so we're, getting in line we're, we're we're good people but we're jostling and elbowing and <laughs> trying to get slip in front of that lady in the with the walker because she's not going very fast <laughs> getting to the front of the line and then the train comes and that the doors won't open they're not opening yet and we're like come on let us on the train i'm like let us on the train then the doors open is there going to be enough room for everybody and people are piling in and, then we got in, we sat down, and everything was fine. 
we got it was all fine but we were really kind of starting to think you know <laughs> what would happen so and well, then we got home and we we stayed inside like you guys yeah well that reminds me of the story of we went to a, a concert at judson college uh, christian concert and yeah. um they're smaller venues you know but uh so we're waiting in the cold and snow, and it was fairly cold. This was years ago. And they did not open those doors. And I'm thinking, come on, this is Judson College. This is a Christian concert, and you know it's going to be, you know, what, 500 people maybe. And uh, open the doors. Just let us come in and wait in the vestibule or something. Yeah. And they would not until that official time or something. So we're out there, we're kind of like paying a little, going, let us in. And then when they let us in, they ran this um, uh, wolf and the three pigs, the three little pigs cartoon yeah. from back in the day. Hmm. And the wolf at one point uh, wraps himself up, and he's trying to get into the house with the piggies, right? And he wraps himself up and has a salt shaker over his head. Uh, making snow come down, and he's looking all shivery in the window to see if the pigs will open the door. Yeah. And right then, I yell out, let us in! <laughs> like we were outside painting. Yeah. And the whole place just went up. You know? You're a funny guy. One of my greatest moments, yeah. actually, <laughs> in my life. <laughs> Everyone just went up laughing, like, let us in! <laughs> that used to happen when I would go to college, uh, when I went to movies in college. Somebody would yell something out in the middle of the movie, and it was hilarious, and people would laugh. And uh, I never tried it, and I'm glad I didn't, because I remember I was at one, and some guy yelled out something, and it was dead silence. <laughs> and somebody else on the other side of the theater said, well, that was hilarious. And he got a laugh. <laughs> but the poor guy... Who called it out into the dead silence and got nothing back? Uh, I felt sorry for him. Still feel sorry for him. Yeah, and I don't. I don't yell things out normally. And, yeah, normally and I don't in the yeah. movie theaters. Yeah, especially when the movie's going. That's why I like going to the movies with you. You don't yell out things. <laughs> well, anyway, that was enjoyable. Um, what do you think? Jump into it. Yeah, let's get on uh, with our interview you, with uh, give, David Roth, give, also known as Sarge. ASL Sarge. ASL Sarge. Give him a call. David Roth, it's Jeff and Dave from the Two Half Squads. Hey, how you guys? Hello. We're glad, Hello there. We, glad we caught you at home. You, I know you You probably wanted to get out the door before we called, but we caught you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I couldn't get out the door fast enough. You know, yeah. Phone rang, and there we go. So. Yeah, yeah. So, well, thanks for taking our call. We have been looking forward to talking to you for okay. like for like a week. Oh, oh my gosh! Before that, we didn't know who you were, you th that you existed. And then we got oh, this. I, I tried to be as uh, incognito as possible. Yeah. You know. <laughs> so um, we are talking to you for a couple of reasons, but the the biggest of which is just to make just a new got... friend. Yes. Well, yes. I okay. like that. I like that's good. Good. Good plan. But we received something in the mail from our friends at Bounding Fire Productions called, uh... called Corregidor. Oh, yes. Saw your name the all rock. over this thing. Hmm. So we thought we, we better call you and find out what is this about, how did this happen, et cetera. And so here we are. Okay. Well, we could give you some background on that if you would like. Yes. Yeah. And we okay. can maybe right. start with some background. Um, let's, let's start at the beginning. Okay. Um, this is going back to the late 90s. Wow. And, uh, and at, the, at the time, I was doing some, uh, some research on the Battle for Manila. Uh, my wife is from the Philippines, so of course it has a personal interest to me. And uh, in doing that research, uh, I ran across some information about the battles of Corregidor, and I did some looking around, and it seemed like, at least in the ASL world, those two battles were basically ignored. I couldn't find any scenarios on it. Mm -hmm. And uh, doing a little more plugging around, I thought, well, you know, it's a small enough battle area, and there's enough actions there that I could probably put together a little product. So... Um, put two and two together, and uh, lo and behold, we were able to come up with uh, enough material through research. I had probably about 25 different research materials that I used. Uh, plus, I was able to uh, talk with several people over in the Philippines who had been there during the battle, which was interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and 
just slowly worked on it in between other projects. And uh, back around, oh, I want to say 2005, I was approached by Chaz Smith. He was starting to put together the uh, uh, Bounding fire, uh, fire Productions again. And he called me one day at, uh, at home on a Saturday. And he said, would you like to join in? I said, sure. And he had already received uh, the submission of Corregidor when he was still with Heat of Battle. And he asked if I would like to bring that along with me to uh, be one of the products that Mountain Fire put together. I said, sure. And uh, just worked on it in between other products and uh, really concentrated heavily on it for the last year, year and a half. And lo and behold, it's come to fruition. It's out there in players' hands. How about that? Uh, yeah. And um, so you've got a couple connections, obviously. You said with your wife, and then uh, and you did some research. Can you? What did you do? What you know? I did a little looking in preparation for this, just looking around for books, like on Amazon. Couldn't find that much specifically on Corregidor. And how would you um, pronounce? How do you correctly pronounce the name? I've always said Corregidor. He's Corregidor. Corregidor. It's, a, it's, it's actually a Spanish word, yeah. The, the Spanish named the island. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it means checkpoint or something, doesn't it? In... Like that, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Or it, it, it basically what it refers to is the Corregidor protects, protects the corridor entering into Manila Bay itself. Right. Yeah, so I looked up on Amazon and I could only find, really, I only found two books. One was Escape from Corregidor, and there were several books about escapes from Corregidor. I think it was all. Uh, yeah. on the same topic. And then the one I bought was called uh, The Alamo of the U.S. I uh, I actually put together the bibliography for it. Uh, for some reason, it didn't get into the, the final print run. I don't know why, but there's a bibliography that I put together for it. Um, all the source material is I've lifted on there. And uh, one of the other things that I'm working on right now for Bounding Fire is, uh, is an article on Corregidor, which is going to be... Uh, I guess you call it the centerpiece for the uh, uh, Recon by Fire 5 magazine that is scheduled to come out later on this year, hopefully. Oh, okay. Uh, I will include the bibliography and source materials and stuff in there with that article, so you'll have all that available to you. There's a, there's a lot out there. Great. And uh, could you just quickly go over for us, give us the couple-paragraph overview of what the action was around Corregidor? Sure. Uh, basically, you got the two battles. You got the one in 1942, where the Americans were defending the island along with some uh, Filipino forces, and, the, uh, and you got the 1945 battle where the Americans went back to retake the island. Mm -hmm. um, in 42, of course, uh, MacArthur was was stationed in his headquarters underneath uh, a big hill on Corregidor. It's called Malinta Hill. And uh, if you visit the island, you can go through those tunnels underneath the hill, and you can see where his headquarters was and all the different things. And, uh, of course, he was ordered by President Roosevelt to leave the island. He didn't want to, but he was ordered by the President of the United States to do so. And he left General Wainwright in charge. And uh, basically, in, in May of 42, the Japanese, for four months before then, had been pounding the island with artillery, uh, basically nonstop, 24-7. And uh, anyone who tried to venture outside those tunnels, of course, was subjected to being killed by the artillery. And But to stay inside those tunnels was rough, too, because you had uh, all the cordite fumes and dust. You had several thousand sweaty, smelly people in there. You had people who had dysentery and malaria and and the wounded and the stench, I guess, was just overpowering, and someone just couldn't take it anymore. They would go out into the open air just to get some fresh air just for a couple seconds. And then uh, in early May, the uh, Japanese finally made their landing about midnight uh, on the north shore of the island, in the middle, it's a place called uh, Bottom Side. It's the lowest part of the island. It's between where the historical map is and also uh, Malinta Hill. And uh, the Japanese thought they'd just walk over the American defenses. Well, they, where they landed, there were American uh, from the 4th Marine Division that were still there, 4th Marine Regiment, I'm sorry, who were there. And uh, between their 50 cals and the 37-millimeter guns and other things that they had available, they inflict about 60% casualties on the initial landing wave. And this really took the Japanese back. And uh, they landed where they were not supposed to, and uh, there was a lot of confusion. And what ended up happening is the Japanese commander, I believe his name was a Colonel Soto, told his troops, hey, remember, where you come ashore, 
just go to your objectives. You know, wherever you came ashore, just go to your objectives. And so some of them went south and cut the island in two, and the other rest of them uh, went west and secured uh, a high ground called uh, Kimberley Field. It's an old, small airfield on the island that could take, like, Piper Cub aircraft. And uh, when the sun came up in the morning, uh, the Japanese repelled a couple of minor counterattacks that the Americans threw at them and launched their own major attack. And uh, General Wainwright realized that he was hopelessly outnumbered and outgunned, and uh, he had no chance of stopping the Japanese, and he was afraid of a massacre. So he uh, tendered his surrender at that time. The battle only lasted about 12 hours, and it was over with. Mm. When the uh, Americans went uh, made plans to go back in 1945, of course, MacArthur insisted that Corregidor be taken back. He was terribly embarrassed. You know, you had to leave the island in the first place, and that he had lost Corregidor Island to the Japanese. And he was very ashamed of that. And... Uh, they tried to figure out how the best way was to take the island, and they thought, well, an amphibious landing was the obvious choice, but the Japanese would be expecting that. And so what they planned on doing was a combination amphibious landing and a paradrop. And uh, all the people who were experts in paradrops back then said, you can't possibly do this on Corregidor. The landing area is way too small. It's like a fourth of the area that would require for an entire regiment to land. But there was one place to head. It was an area called the Parade Grounds and uh, the golf course where they were going to land. And when they came in about 8.30 in the morning, uh, there was heavy crosswinds, about 25, 30 miles an hour, which is way too much for paratroopers, but they had no choice. They had to come across. And uh, a number of the uh, paratroopers were blown out near the cliffs. Uh, the cliffs dropped 500 feet straight down into Manila Bay. Yikes. Uh, yeah, and the few that did land in the water, the, uh, they had PT boats cruising the shoreline, so they were able to pick them up right away. They didn't have anybody lost uh, through that. Um, the Japanese had never expected any kind of a paradrop could even be possible, so they were prepared for it. Um, their senior commander, Captain Itagaki, he had taken a uh, his senior commanders along with a, a squad of troops. They went out to a place called Breakwater Point, and uh, they had heard that there were American landing barges moving toward the island. And they were standing there looking to see where they were coming from, and they totally didn't even see these aircraft flying overhead. And... Uh, a platoon of paratroopers landed nearby, and as they're walking up back up to topside, they see these Japanese officers scanning out over the bay, and they got in a short firefight, and they killed all the Japanese. Well, the Japanese lost their senior officer, and in uh, the Japanese um, way of doing things in their military, having a centralized command is critical. They're, they're not allowed to think for themselves. They're not allowed to be free, freelancers. Mm -hmm. uh, without a central command... They're all isolated groups all over the island. They have no way of coordinating it. And shortly after that, the Americans managed to knock out the Japanese main radio station, so they're totally isolated. Um, when the first drop hit, there's about 1,200 paratroopers on the island, and they figured uh, there's like maybe going to be 500 Japanese there. And, well, actually, there's 7,000 Japanese on the island. Nice. So they're outnumbered. Yeah, so they're outnumbered almost seven to one to begin with, and they didn't realize it. So even when all the other Paratroopers landed, and the amphibious force landed. They only had about 4,000 guys. They're outnumbered almost two to one. Um, fortunately, the Japanese uh, played a very defensive battle for the most part. They held up in uh, the old gun batteries, uh, specifically. They had a number of pillboxes they built up, and they held out in the uh, old ruined buildings from the old U.S. Army base that was there. And basically, it was just a it was a Stalingrad of the, of the Pacific, if you will. It was just a brutal fight, no quarter for either side. And uh, the Japanese force was basically wiped out uh, 99.999%. Oh, I think they took maybe a handful of you know, prisoners during the battle. Um, the biggest thing that the Japanese did during the battle was they had a very bad penchant for blowing themselves up and trying to blow up Americans at the same time. They had mm -hmm. hundreds of pounds of explosives under these underground tunnels and stuff trying to blow up the uh, Americans above ground. And um, they conducted several large bonsai charges as well, including a couple of nighttime ones that uh, almost succeeded. There was one in the middle of the battle about the fourth or fifth day that almost succeeded in retaking the high ground. And if it had succeeded, uh, the Americans would have been serious trouble, real serious trouble. And there you go. Quick summary. Wow. So I take it a lot of those actions would appear in the scenarios? 
vast majority of them, yeah. Um, we try to pick uh, actions that took place all over on, on what's called uh, topside, which is the high ground on the island. And uh, for the stuff that takes place on middle side and bottom side, the other two parts of the island, those are done on geoboards, simply because we tried to restrict the size of the hassle maps so that would fit on uh, most players' game tables or kitchen tables. So you have to have this huge area to set up a big map. Right. Okay, well, let's uh, so let's talk about the product a little bit, if we could. The, um, the the first thing anybody looks at when they tear into an ASL product are the maps, probably, and of course. these are spectacular maps. Yeah, they're, I gotta tell you, I just seen them for the first time tonight because Jeff, uh, the package came to Jeff's house, and um, it it I guess is it, did Rick do the artwork on it? Right? I had submitted the uh, the hand drawn map to Rick. Uh, a long time ago, and he did a fantastic job uh, digitizing the map and taking my uh, my very crude scribbles and making it look professional. I was very pleased, yes. Yeah, it just looks very uh, unique and lots of little little detail, it seems like, like quite an improvement the technology must be allowing for. And Rick's great design, and you're a great design. Oh, thank you. But So maybe you can go over some of the uh, features on the map that uh, ASLers are not used to seeing because that, if anything, will get them to buy something. It's the idea that they're missing out on something. Okay. So there's quite well, a few really interesting features on this, but why don't you uh, just off the top go go over some of these? All right. Well, you've got almost right in the middle of the map, you have this huge long building that was called the Topside Barracks or the Mile Long Barracks, they used to refer to it as. Uh, simply because the soldiers that had to march back and forth on, on, on that thing uh, over and over, back and forth, felt like they'd walk many miles when they cruised back and forth on that thing. Um, most of the uh, larger army buildings on the Isle of Corregidor were made of uh, stone construction. They had wooden roofs. And uh, during the fighting in 42 and then again in 45, those roofs, of course, were burned away or blown away. But the uh, structures were fairly intact. And um, what the Japanese would do is they'd set up light anti-aircraft guns or uh, mortars in the upper stories of these buildings and use those uh, to be able to cover wide areas. So it was, uh, it was very uh, difficult to, for Americans to move around anywhere up there. And there, there are a number of those uh, what we call roofless buildings uh, throughout the map, primarily surrounding the, uh, the central parade grounds. You see lots of them. They've got kind of like a little checkerboard pattern on top of them. Right. And uh, there were a few intact buildings. The other really key feature, I think, that you'll find on the map, I believe there are seven of them. They're the, uh, the gun batteries. These uh, typically housed 12-inch guns that were set up to uh, interdict any naval vessels that tried to enter Manila Bay. Of course, the guns and crews were all knocked out prior to the Americans' uh, uh, Excuse me, part of the Japanese laying in 42, and they were never uh, repaired. Um, one gun battery on uh, the far, far southeast corner of the map, Battery Geary, uh, in 42, uh, a 240 millimeter uh, Japanese shell penetrated the powder magazine and literally uh, disintegrated the entire gun battery. It vaporized the crew. It blew a couple of the mortars. Uh, up to like half a mile away. It was an incredible explosion. Wow. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, these gun batteries the Japanese held out on uh, for days. Uh, there's one real close to the landing area, just to the southwest of it, it's called uh, Battery Wheeler. And uh, the Americans began assaulting that on day one, and it didn't fall for four days. The Japanese, what they'd do is they'd hide out in the powder magazines uh, underground, which had reinforced blast steel blast doors on them. And uh, as the Americans would approach, then they'd climb out onto the ramparts, and they'd fire, of course, their small arms and machine guns and mortars at them and repel the attack, and they'd crawl back underneath again. It was like a heavily armed super pillbox, if you will. And uh, the only way the Americans found they could clear them out was with uh, flamethrowers and high explosives. So the gun batteries that we see on this map, are there? there's no guns in them. Right, there's no like uh, the, the guns are useless. You can't use them, right? Uh, the Americans, when they realized the Japanese were going to take over, they took the breach blocks and threw them out into the middle of the bay and, and destroyed the firing mechanisms so the guns couldn't be used by any, either side. Now, and they they're were just, the they guns were, are just depicted so you know what they're for. They were old guns to begin with. 
Like exactly. Playing, yeah, really like <laughs> old borders and stuff from World War One. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Um, they uh, were installed by uh, the Americans in the early early 1900s. Yeah. So they uh, they were they predated World War One actually. But they still used the the structures of the gun batteries for <clears throat> more modern artillery. Yes. Yeah. Um, the Japanese had uh, in various places through the island. Uh, between 42 and 45, they actually transferred in a dozen 155-millimeter guns of their own. Uh, a couple of these up in caves, a couple of these up in other fortifications on the island, and the Americans had to make sure they knocked all those out prior to the, trying the amphibious landing. They did get most of them. I think there was two that were left that they interdicted the amphibious assault uh, on the first day. And then along on, the, on each gun battery, there is a... Um, one of the hexes has a red dot in it. Tell us about the the significance sure. of the red dot and what's under there. Sure. What we tried to do, because each of the gun batteries, if you look at pictures of them, which you can see online, if you just uh, just Google search gun batteries on Corregidor, they all had uh, slightly different designs to them and layouts. And rather than try to have seven different looking uh, new terrain types out there, we decided to standardize them all. Uh, we had them... Uh, sunk down into the ground. They're actually about 10 to 12 feet below the surface of the surrounding terrain. And then that building represents the powder magazine. Uh, the red dot is a, uh, is a stairwell that connects the uh, above ground building with the uh, cellar location, if you will, down oh, below. Yeah, cool. And uh, the cellar is, is treated like a fortified cellar. And you can only engage uh, units in that cellar from uh, the building above, or if you're close combat with them down below, otherwise you have no line of sight to them, you can't get to them. Okay, and there's a, I guess overstacking limit on that is uh, one squad plus three single man counters, is that right? You need, I don't remember right offhand what it was. I would need to dig through the rules on okay. that one, but yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, I think I saw that. Yeah. yeah. Um, what other? Oh yeah, this mile long, this so-called mile long barracks is is pretty cool looking structure on this map. That is pretty neat. Yeah, some of the buildings on the island had cellars. The topside barracks did not. Um, it was just a ground floor and an upper floor basically, and there's only a couple stairwells in the buildings. So you have limited access to move up and down. I believe on the map there are six stairwells, and uh, because of that, it was a it's a very defensible. Uh, position um, because the, uh, anyone trying to attack it has limited uh, egress to be able to get upstairs and uh, an easy way and uh, we found in play testing this thing was that for the Japanese set up uh, wire and mines in those hexes where the stairwells are and it, it made it very difficult for the Americans to get upstairs until they had you know, cleared that out so very time consuming and costly pro project oh. There's a railroad on this, but obviously it's been bombed out <laughs> in some spots. So yeah, yeah, that railroad was used um, to transport supplies and ammunition from uh, the docks down on bottom side up to the various gun batteries and key buildings on on top side. And uh, between the battles, the Japanese had taken all the uh, uh, metal uh, rails out and sent them back to Japan for scrap metal to be used for, for making other things. Oh, yeah. the there, there. there is no rails. There's no rails on yeah, there. There's no rails, yeah. So uh, I was it's, it's there for occupation just because it was and because uh, if it's hit by HE, for example, it can leave debris in those hexes. You'll see there's a few of those railroad hexes that have debris in, in some locations. Right. Yeah. yeah, they took all the rails out. They're all gone. That's, that's funny looking because at first I thought it was like a spigot mortar thing from that other game that came out a long time ago because uh, it looked different. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why. Okay. And I see some things that look like tanks on here, water tanks maybe, and there's something else around structure. Over on the right. On the far right-hand side of the map, yeah, it's the highest point on the island. There are three large water tanks, uh, concrete water tanks up there that supplied the water for the whole army berries. And uh, there's also the lighthouse, of course, obvious reasons oh, to over there. Uh, let, let ships in the harbor know where the, where the island is. Oh, cool! Uh, Our first lighthouse, yeah. folks. I think there in you ASL. Go. Yeah. All right. Uh, the lighthouse has been rebuilt. It looks a lot different now than it back then. But uh, even back then, it's uh, it's normal stacking downstairs. And I think it's uh, 
uh, half squad or a crew maximum stacking upstairs because it's just a very small standing. If you, you're lucky, if you can get ten people up there. Cool. No girls' school or tennis courts though, but <laughs> no, there was a golf course, but no tennis courts on the island. <laughs> now there are levels, and apparently, I, you know, I was going to ask like which which color is ground level, but you know, ground level is always um, kind of relative anyway. But at Crockett Ravine. Yeah, there's a number of large ravines that sloped uh, steeply down from the high ground down to the uh, to the beaches on the, uh, the edge of the island. Uh, Crockett Ravine is one. James Ravine is on the north side of the island. There's only a portion of that one's depicted on the map. Um, Crockett Ravine had a number of uh, Japanese pillboxes, and they hid out a number of caves in there, and uh, that position didn't fall for about five or six days. Uh, yeah, it's, it's negative ground terrain. It's moving downhill. Yeah. Okay. I see the I see the level. Jeff pointed out the level. The There's markers. a legend. Legend. Yeah. Thank you. But um, and the, if if players are afraid of different levels, uh, negative one to four, don't be because this map is so like seems wide that you're not going to have a lot of issues with line of sight and stuff. There's like big open areas and in, in in the in the first level and the second level. Are vast and and wide and open, yet you do have a lot of variety that you you can use. So it's it's really neat. Yeah, most of the vegetation has been blown or burned away, so there's really little vegetation out too. So like you say, there's large, wide open areas that uh, line of sight, 15, 20, 25 hexes is not uncommon. Yeah, which I thought was interesting, and for those people that don't care for or are afraid of. Uh, jungle terrain because it's too difficult. There is there any jungle terrain on this map? It's light jungle. There's a few. There's a few spaces that have light jungle on it. Okay. Uh, some of those are put on the map um, so that there basically would be a place to route to. Um, hmm. If you actually depicted the map uh, as it showed in uh, February of '45, there'd be almost nothing left on the island vegetation-wise, except for down uh, in the ravines and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, we put those on there to have route locations to go to and to make it a little bit more difficult on the paratroopers when they come in. Yeah, and the, uh, you know, overall, for people that aren't, that don't have color uh, podcasting uh, capability, <laughs> the overall color scheme of the map is surprisingly brown, brown. not green. And uh, it's a little bit different color scheme than we've seen on other maps, which which I like. I mean, it looks. I think it looks fantastic. Yeah, the original map was done with, with the uh, light, what we call spring green for the level zero and different things, and it just wasn't working on this map simply because the uh, the level zero on the map, like we said, is 500 feet above above sea level, so we had to make some concessions there and some, some changes. Um, and it seemed to work out really well. It seemed to work out really well. Yeah, it turned out great. Now you you had mentioned that um, the paradrop was particularly challenging at first. Even uh, they thought maybe they couldn't do it, but they did find a way to do it. And you've covered that so with some special rules. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, in the para landings on Corregidor, uh, they were unlike any other paradrop in the world war. Um, basically, these guys were jumping out of their planes 50 to 5, so that when the chute popped, about one and a half to two seconds later, their feet were hitting the ground already. So they had no chance to try and adjust where they were landing. I mean, when when they hit, they, they hit. And uh, there were about 70% of the of the first wave that landed had some kind of an injury, either, you know, scrapes, uh, broken bones, broken legs, that type of thing. Uh, some of them were impaled when they landed on the uh, uh, shattered trunks of trees. Um, there was a swimming pool on the island. We didn't depict it because it was basically blown apart and it was just remnants of it. But uh, several paratroopers landed in the concrete bottom of the, of the, uh, the swimming pool. And of course, they were killed instantly. And with the high winds, it made, uh, made landing where they wanted to almost impossible. They were scattered all over the the top of the island when they landed. It took them forever to get get back together and coordinate their units. So what we did with the uh, rules, we tried to reflect that a little bit. Um, 
basically still allow for some some drift because of the winds and stuff, but uh, not allowing them to to be able to adjust. I think the Americans and standard paratrooper rules have a one hex adjustment that they can make just before they touch down, and these guys didn't have that opportunity. So we had to phase that out and uh, revise the rules slightly to incorporate all that. It seemed to work out really well too. Um, I think if players just follow the the paradrop player guide that's in there and just take it step by step, it becomes uh, almost second nature the second or third time you play it. Yeah, it says it, it says here. I'm just looking at the rules and it says that uh, a lot of times the well, apparently the planes had to make two passes in order to get all the paratroopers out. Right. Because because uh, it was such a small landing zone, only half the. So how do you handle that in this, or do you? Is that particularly... Yeah, what we did is we take yeah your standard uh, ASR rules. You've got uh, five sticks in a wing. Yeah. And what yeah. we did is we shrunk that down to only three sticks in a wing. And that, that seems to, uh, to reflect that really well. Okay. And what other... There's some interesting other uh, aircraft on this. And how do those oh, come into play? Yeah. Heavy bombers. Yeah, the uh, Americans, of course, had some air bases on uh, on the Isle of Luzon, which uh, is where Manila is. And um, they had P-47s, they had P-38s, they had some uh, A-20 Havocs, they had B-24s, B-25s. And uh, they used a combination of all those aircraft in, in pounding the Japanese positions on the island prior to landing. And the ones that seemed that they used the most were the... Uh, a-20 Havoc, the uh, Mitchell, and then the P-38 Lightning. And uh, reading some of the uh, results from uh, uh, General Kinney, who was uh, MacArthur's air, air chief, uh, when they were attacking Brigadier, uh, they didn't just come in and hit one area and then move off. They actually did some bombing runs, sort of like they were doing in Europe when they were attacking uh, German factories and stuff, where they hit, dropped a long string of bombs in a long area, so... We try to create some new rules to uh, allow players to have that option. That looks like yeah, fun. That, that's different. Will there be any uh, of that bombing in the shorter scenarios, sure. or does that only happen when the there's one game? the big the really big scenario? Um, that one incorporates some of the aircraft having that, and then of course it's available in the campaign game number two. Uh, Americans can purchase those aircraft. And they can use the uh, either standing bombing, or they can use the uh, what's called the bombing run. In that, if they choose, it's an option that's available to be used. Okay. One thing I notice on the map is that there's there's two maps. Uh, there's yeah. quite a bit of overlap between the two maps when you fit them together. I think that was just a concession for the printer that Rick did. Uh, that way they could make both map sheets the same size. Oh, and, yeah, uh, fold better, fit better. Yeah, didn't have to uh, make any adjustments there. I think it was a cost cost thing more than anything else. Yeah, there's a big overlap. I think it's like about six or eight inches, surprisingly, because most of your hassle maps have just about uh, maybe a two hex overlap. Right. Just wanted to pe people to know that so they don't call and say, hey, uh, my map is, <laughs> part of my map is missing. Yeah, we got half of it. Now, there's a Noba direct fire player aid included in this game. Mm -hmm. Did you have anything to do with that also? or is that something... Yeah, um, that was done um, as a direct uh, result of, the, uh, especially during the uh, amphibious landing, which occurred about 1030 on the first day of the 1945 battle. Uh, Japanese guns and uh, heavy weapons in caves along the... Uh, the shoreline that overlooked the landing beaches uh, are starting to inflict some serious losses. And what happened is the uh, Navy destroyers and light destroyers would come in really close to shore, and they would fire point blank at these uh, at these caves and other positions to take them out. And uh, they were firing from maybe three, four hundred yards away. And we thought just standard uh, NOBA rules really didn't uh, reflect that. And so we tried to find a simplified way uh, to represent those destroyers coming in close to shore and, uh, and, and providing the supporting fire that they did. So that's very specific to this game, this 
Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that maybe down the road, uh, some other designers would incorporate something similar to that in some of the actions, but, uh, yeah, we were the first. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. And on the back of that is some light AA fire. Are those just notes or is that a continuation of the rules? It has a example on it. There's light AA fire. Um, That would be on the back of the paratrooper uh, player aid, the light AA fire. Yes, yeah, it actually ends up on the note so, one, but yeah. Is that just like some notes, foot, like huh. notes to use as a quick guide? Well, like I said, it's, it's all part of the paradrop uh, special rules. Uh, yeah, it describes I mean, what light AA fire is and how you, it's used against uh, aerial paratroopers and stuff. Right, and it does have the landing injuries on it and then the example. Right, right, right. Okay, right. cool. Yeah. cool. Yes, that's, that's part of the paratrooper rules. So you've got a great map. You've got a great basis for which to uh, build the historical module. Then you came up with, wow, quite a few scenarios, plus uh, in the campaign game. And that was all your work, doing all these scenarios? Yes, it was. It was, it was a lot of work. Um, Probably spent the better part of two years doing nothing but the research on it and compiling the notes. And then from the notes, we roughed out uh, some scenarios. And uh, as we delved into more and more research, we came up with more and more material. And uh, we tried to cover as many of the actions as we could. Uh, there was a, a few of the scenarios that I had roughed out that uh, we passed on simply because they didn't work out well. And we took uh, the best of the rest and, and put those into the product. And it looks like the first three the first three scenarios take place in 1942 as the Americans were losing control of the island. Right, and like I said, there wasn't a lot to be able to select from because the battle only lasted like 12 hours. Yeah. So you can't really pick a lot of actions. Uh, all the fighting occurred uh, between the uh, landing areas in the middle of the island and Melinda Hill, and. Uh, most of the troops, American troops, actually were stationed on the west side of the island. Never got involved in the battle because Wainwright uh, fell for a Japanese uh, trick. The Japanese faked the, uh, that they might possibly be running an amphibious landing on the west shore, so he kept most of his best troops there, and they never got even got involved in the fighting. Wow. The guys he threw, wow. you know, the guys he threw into the actual battle, he had uh, one battalion of the Marines. And he had a combination of cooks and sailors and uh, people like that and Filipino forces, and that was what he fought the main battle with. We see, too, um, a significant change in the quality of the units between 19, the Americans, at least, between 1942 and 1945. You got a scenario here, your scenario yeah. three with uh, 447s, some second-line troops there. And then yeah, that'd, in be yeah, that'd be typical for the early war American army. Yeah, yeah in the Philippines. Yeah. A lot of those guys, apparently from what I was reading, were kind of thinking that the Philippines was the best place to be because they weren't expecting, you know, they, well, the Japanese obviously started to get more aggressive, but a lot of these guys, when they signed on, they thought going to the Philippines would be the place to go because there's no action there and it's kind of a paradise. But prior, Yeah, prior to the war, uh, the the Philippines was actually one of the preferred overseas stations to go to. I mean, you get you get the tropical climate, uh, you get the naval and army and air, air bases there. Uh, you got Manila City, which had lots of places for the, for the military personnel to go and visit. And uh, it was really a country club existence prior to the war. Uh, military people really enjoyed it. And of course, once the war started, the uh, Japanese trapped the forces on Bataan, forces surrendered there, and then uh, they began the uh, major assault on Corregidor Island itself, and it, uh, it became hell on earth for the guys there. Yeah. yeah. So uh, in the rest of the scenarios, do you have any particular favorites or uh, one do you want to point out as you thought was especially clever? If you ever want to pat yourself on the back, <laughs> now is the yeah, time yeah, to pat, do pat, it. Pat, pat, pat. 
Um, the ones that the, I can tell you, the ones that the playtesters seem to enjoy the most. Uh, they got the the most uh, requests. Hey, can we do this one? Hey, can we do this one again? Huh. Um, you've got Return to the Rock, which represents the uh, the paratroopers returning to the island. Um, Bloody Wheeler uh, depicts uh, one of the actions trying to take that gun battery, and that uh, that was actually one of Chance Smith's favorite scenarios. Um, he really enjoyed that one. Um, Par for the course is probably the other one that uh, got a lot of plays. Uh, it has the Japanese attacking, and uh, it's a back and forth type type of an action that uh, swings back and forth all game long. And it's usually the very last turn before it's decided. That would probably be my personal favorite. Cool. Very nice. And I, I, it was so long ago that you we started talking to you. Did you say you have been to Corregidor? I have not. I've been oh, to Manila okay. three times. Okay. And uh, and uh, the very last trip that I had, I got violently ill from food poisoning. I wasn't able to go on the boat, obviously. And uh, the trip before that, I wanted to go across, but there was a really strong storm hitting the bay that that weekend that I had a chance to go, and uh, they canceled the ferry. So uh, I've not been to the island itself. been to Manila three times. I walked the Manila battlefield, but I've not been uh, set foot on the island of Corregidor myself yet. I do hope to be able to go back there the next time uh, time I return to the Philippines, yes. I watched a little promotional travelogue sort of film um, on YouTube the other day. So I got to mm-hmm. see around the island a little bit. And uh, it looked like a really interesting place to stop. And a quick ride from Manila. They said it was an hour, I think, by ferry or hour and a half. An hour or so by ferry. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And I was, uh, you know, they did yeah, quite a bit go, of... Yeah, when you go, there's a number. Go ahead. I was going to say they did quite a bit of spent quite a bit of time uh, going through the tunnels that are under the island. Now, what were those tunnels originally for? Were they originally for support of the the batteries? Yes, they were. They were there for uh, uh, basic places to hide out from possible uh, uh, when uh, if they expected any enemy ships to be shelling the island. Of course, it was a pretty great place to be able to hide out, and the Japanese uh, extended those tunnels considerably. And uh, they made full use of those uh, in 45 and were able to move troops back and forth fairly easily to between several key buildings and stuff. I was kind of surprised um, when, I, when I saw the map. I was kind of surprised we didn't see any of the tunnels or action. Yeah, there was actually, yeah, there's actually so many it would have been almost impossible to try to pick them all. I've got a, a U.S. Army Corps of Engineers map that I use as one of the resource guides. And it shows where all the tunnels are. And it was just a, it was like a honeycomb underneath the surface of the island. Um, it's just one of those things that would have been impossible to portray in the historical map. But some of the scenarios have caves. Those would be the yes. tunnels. that. Right. There are a few. Yeah. Um, the Japanese, actually, there's very few caves that were used on the island except for on the hillsides Along the coastal road, there are a number of caves there that the Japanese had occupied and had used for defensive positions. But uh, Corregidor is really PTO light. Uh, very few caves are used. You don't have Pangees. There's a number of other PTO rules that don't even get used. And so it's uh, it's really a nice, I think, a nice transition uh, product for people who maybe haven't you know, stepped foot into PTO yet and are a little bit hesitant. It's an easy way to you know get your feet wet, as it were, and uh, learn the basics of some of the more simplified PTO rules and uh, still enjoy it. Yeah, counter sheet also comes with the game. Uh, some open ground mm-hmm. uh, counters. Those can probably be used for any of the games. Right? Exactly. Some yeah, they're, they're used specifically in uh, in uh, the scenario the Japanese are in Denver. It's one that depicts the Japanese sitting up 50 caliber uh, in May of 42 at the uh, gun battery position uh, overlooking the Kindley Airfield. And uh, in order to alter the terrain on the geoboard that was used, uh, it uses some of those open ground counters for that. And then you get uh, some more sniper counters and uh, a wonderful-looking Japanese turn counter with the American symbol <laughs> on the back for the – must be the Army designation. Yeah. And the um, – there are some 747s. Those are standard, I think. For- yeah, there's one scenario that uses more uh, 
American paratroop counters and more Japanese 448 counters that are available in the standard counter mix that someone just has uh, either Rising Sun or Koto Bushido. So we had to print out those extra counters that they didn't have in the bills so they could play the scenario. Okay, okay. That's why they're in Yeah, and then a lot of marker counters and then the uh, airplanes, all the cool new airplanes are in here and, and some weather markers and it looks like some Noba counters with the red arrow on them, 150 millimeter. Accurate. Right. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, the NOBA rules, um, if you use it in a scenario, it's, it's a little unique as far as rules are concerned. You pick a, a hex side edge along the edge of the map, and that's where your ship uh, is offshore from. That's where you trace all of your line of sights to and from. And then uh, the other thing that's interesting about it is, of course, ships aren't required to sit still like uh Based artillery, the ships can move back and forth, parallel to the shoreline. And so from turn to turn, you can actually change the location of your ship. And uh, your guns can either be directed by the shipboard observer, or you can have, uh, as what happened on Corregidor, each, uh, each paratrooper company had a Navy destroyer of their own artillery, as it were. And they had uh, an assigned radio operator with each company, and they could uh, contact uh, within a matter of time, have the ship directing fire wherever the, the paratroopers needed it. Yeah, excellent. Well, I think we covered about all the components in the background. Um, Jeff, do you have any other notes you wanted to ask? Well, just okay. if you want to, uh, to everybody that's listening, if you would like to buy your own personal copy of Corregidor, you can go to Bounding Fire Productions, well, boundingfire.com, look for it there. It's only $87, which seems like a good deal. And then, David, do you have anything else you want to add? I believe that, uh, yeah. I should say, I think that LT is offering it in Europe as well. Okay, get it from them also. Yeah. And do you have anything else you'd like to add before we say goodbye? <laughs> I just hope everybody that uh, has it gets a chance to play it all and really enjoy it. Uh, it was a pleasure to to research it, to design it, to play test it, and put it together, and I hope the guys that have it uh, have as much pleasure out of it as we did working on it. And if somebody wanted to reach you, do you, can they find you on Facebook or some other social media? MySpace uh, on Facebook or um, State Private. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, uh, on Facebook, yeah, I'm on there. It's oh, okay. ASL Sarge. Okay. Um, you can also get me on, uh, on the Game Squad forums. Um, we're there, and uh, I don't have a uh, don't have a Twitter account. Thank goodness. Yeah, thank goodness. <laughs> and what are you working on now? Corregidor is done. What's next? Oh, what's next? Well, yeah. the one that we're I'm heavily involved in. I've, I've always got a lot of, of uh, fires going. Um, I was doing a check the other day. I'm currently working on about 11 different products right now, plus doing playtesting for the uh, what for the uh, re-release of Onslaught to Orsha. Which uh, hopefully will be out later this year. Okay. Um, my own personal, okay. my own personal stuff that I'm working on, of course, is uh, uh, the Battle of Peleliu, uh, which is also another PTO product. Um, Critical Hit put out one uh, a couple years ago that was called White Beach One, which depicts this very small portion of the battle in one small area of the map. And uh, the map that we put together is about three times bigger than that and covers uh, the vast majority of the actions that took place on that island. It's a, it's a very bloody. Oh, that should be interesting. Good. 11 different products. And it's been wow. a lot of, That's great. Yeah, 11 different products right now that I'm working on between the hassles and scenario packs. We tinker back and forth between them off and on, depending on uh, my whim and whimsy. <laughs> well, we'll let you get back to work. We appreciate you taking time to talk to us, and uh, this is a super nice product. And I hope you're proud of it because it's beautiful. Yep, we're be anxious to get into playing some of them. Yeah. Thank you very much, guys. Enjoy talking to you. All right. All right. Thanks. Have Take good, care. Thanks very much. Bye, Dave. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, Jeff. Jeff. Are you ready to go to Mayhem in Manila? I sure am, Dave. I've got my bags packed. I've got my passport and my hat. Do you have your OBA cards? No, I don't. How would I get some? Why, you'd have to go to... Ritterkrieg and order some. 
Ritter Creek? I don't know anything about it. Tell me. Well, this is the great online store of ASL equipment. ASL wooden gaming products like dice towers, custom-made tabletops, an ammo box map and map case, and all kinds of ASL products. You can order yours today and have it shipped to Mayhem in Manila. I wow, I'm going to get all that stuff. I know what I'll do. I'll tell my wife I can't afford to take her, but I'll take all my Ritter stuff with me. But Jeff, you might be able to take her because a donor has donated our air flight <laughs> to Asia. Sweet. All right, then this is the best thing that could happen. I can take my wife, I can take all my Ritter Krieg equipment, and we're going to Mayhem, Mayhem in, in Manila. Manila. And these OBA cards aren't the crappy kind that we sold on our podcast. No. These are those really cool quality ASL OBA cards. It's a gigantic deck of cards that it, you can use for all of your OBA requirements. All of your OBA requirements. And do you know what makes ordering from Ritter Krieg the best option for any pre-orders? Tell me. They have free shipping. <gasps> Impossible. Take that, MMP. Well, that's a beautiful thing. So, how do we get to uh, order this Ritter Krieg stuff? Well, you simply go to Ritterkrieg.com. R-I-T-T-E-R-K-R-I-E-G.com. I'm heading there right now. See you in Manila, Dave. See you in Manila. David Roth, ladies and gentlemen. How about that? Wow, amazing. Yeah, very nice. Years of preparation. Yes. Not as long as, you know, if if he was doing something for MMP, he'd probably add three more years onto that. (laughs) To get it published. Yeah. Just they do things a little differently. It's crazy, the the research and design and finding the battles and all the components. But anyway. And it's a beautiful product, very much worth uh, owning. So... Get over to BoundingFire.com, tell them the two half squats sent you, or if you're feeling crazy. I think you can order this at Ritter Krieg. Yep. Tell them the two half squats sent you. The free shipping with Ritter Krieg. That's right. Do that, and uh, I guess that'll wrap up this episode. Yeah, Dave? Yeah, I think it will. All right, let's go put our Snuggies on and uh, wish everybody a fair farewell. Fair farewell. Teary farewell. Yep. So remember to roll low. And rally well. But, but not, not when you're playing, playing us. us. See you next time. Bye-bye. Oh, Jeff. Jeff. Are you ready to go to Mayhem in Manila? I sure am, Dave. I've got my bags packed. I've got my passport and my hat. Do you have your OBA cards? No, I don't. How would I get some? Why, you'd have to go to Ritterkrieg. And order some. Ritter Krieg? I don't know anything about it. Tell me. Well, this is the great online store of ASL equipment. ASL wooden gaming products like dice towers, custom-made tabletops, an ammo box map and map case, and all kinds of ASL products. You can order yours today and have it shipped to Mayhem in Manila. I, wow, I'm going to get all that stuff. I know what I'll do. I'll tell my wife I can't afford to take her, but I'll take all my Ritter stuff with me. But Jeff, you might be able to take her because a donor has donated our air flight (laughs) to Asia. Sweet. All right, then this is the best thing that could happen. I can take my wife, I can take all my Ritter Krieg equipment, and we're going to... Mayhem in Manila. And these OBA cards aren't the crappy kind that we sold on our podcast. No. These are those really cool quality ASL OBA cards. It's a gigantic deck of cards that you can use for all of your OBA requirements. All of your OBA requirements. And do you know what makes ordering from Ritter Krieg the best option for any pre-orders? Tell me. They have free shipping. (gasps) Impossible. Take that, MMP. Well, that's a beautiful thing. So, how do we get to uh, 
order this Ritter Krieg stuff? Well, you simply go to Ritterkrieg.com, R-I-T-T-E-R-K-R-I-E-G.com. I'm heading there right now. See you in Manila, Dave. See you in Manila.